Well, thank you, Kelly, your worship team, for leading us well. Welcome, everybody, to the house of the Lord. Good to see your smiling faces. Um, the Lord is good, and He is faithful, and He is present, and He is with us, and we are so grateful for the opportunity to worship Him together this morning. Uh, I'm going to uh, finish what I started last week. You know, that's a good trait uh, uh, to have. Finish what you start. Uh, how many of you have uh, projects at home that you started uh, a couple of years ago, but you haven't finished it yet? This message is for you, okay? Uh, but before I read the scripture, we're going to pray together. Um, this is a prayer that we are accustomed to praying. As we uh, place ourselves before the Lord with kind of this, just this openness to hearing what he may have to say to us. Um, as a preacher of the word, it astounds me sometimes that God speaks beyond my preparation. I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> but the ability to hear the Word of God rests entirely upon our willingness to become attentive. Uh, this phrase, speak, Lord, for we are listening. Speak, Lord, the words that we need to know and hear today. Would this be your prayer? Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the Scriptures are read and your Word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Romans chapter 12, reading from verse 14 through to 21, and hear the Word of the Lord. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Do not be proud. But associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Uh, do not overcome evil, or uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Father, this morning we have prayed that we would hear your word, but now I ask sincerely and humbly that through your gracious gift of your spirit that you would take thoughts that you have given me and empower them to be that which speaks truth of who you are 
and what you desire. I pray that as we hear your word, you may rekindle within us an anticipation that you have a word for us. May this morning we hear your word, and may we be obedient to what you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before I start, I want to um, just uh, share a little bit with you about some prayer needs that we have as a church, and I feel it appropriate this morning. There are still some of our people who are dealing with different challenges. Um, some people who have experienced the loss of loved ones over this season. And as a church community, we want to continue to pray for them. In particular this morning, the Mabudi family with the loss of father and husband, Peter. Uh, continue to keep Bola and the family in prayer. We want to continue to keep um, several of our people that are not able to yet meet with us because of health conditions in prayer as well. So we want to be thoughtful of those who are not able to gather as yet. And then just this past week, we received a notice that one of our missionary families, the Manswell family, um, two of their sons was driving together in a car accident and had a car and had an accident. Uh, one had emergency back surgery. The other one is recovering. And so we want to continue to keep the Manswell family in our prayers this morning as well. Turning to our text, what does authentic Christian love look like? This word love, co-opted in the culture to mean many things, sometimes feeling and emotion, a pleasant or a warm disposition to somebody else, but the Bible would have us know that love is a verb. Love is something that is lived out, that is expressed, that has a tangible nature to it. It does not mean that when we speak of love as Christians that we do not speak also of our emotions or our feelings, but certainly this is not the only place or the starting place perhaps for what loving action looks like. Sometimes we may not feel like we want to love, and yet the Scriptures make it very clear, and Jesus says this, the world will know that we belong to Him by the way in which we love one another. The Apostle Paul would have us understand that love works itself out in the relationships we have. Maybe I'll say it this way. Paul is convinced that the church in Rome needs to learn how to actually love one another well. There's the presumption, perhaps, that some of us have, that when you show up in a church, everybody loves Jesus, therefore everybody knows how to love well. But the reality is that many of us carry perspectives, ideas of what it means to love the other that we have been brought up with. Some of us have to unlearn some things. Uh, for example, some of us may have grown up in a home in which love was always conditionally shown. If you are good, if you pass, if you are successful, if you listen, there was the sense perhaps for some of us that love was always contingent upon our behavior. 
And maybe for some of us, love was glaringly absent because we did not experience the intimacy and the care that we desired in our homes and upbringings. Maybe as some of us today that have been in love and have had our hearts broken, maybe there's some of us that are lonely and desperate and searching for love and have yet to find that which we are longing for. But to the question, what does Christian love look like? The answer, the short answer is a lot harder than we think. It is not determined by our feelings. And in fact, the Apostle Paul would say it is not even contingent about upon others. In other words, we are not just called to love some and not others. The Scriptures will have us know that we are called to be a people of love. Therefore, any person, all people, are to be loved by us as we have been loved by God. And I want to suggest this before I make five succinct good points. <laughs> you see, I've been here long enough now where I realize that, um, son, can I have my water, please? Thank you. You did a good job on the base today. Where I, I realize I have to give you more than three points, so five points this morning. But before I get there, I want to suggest a few things. And this is all contextual, this is all true to Romans and what is happening in the church, and I'll give you a little bit of information in a second. But the church for Paul becomes the place in which Christians learn how to love as they've been loved. The challenge is for many of us to understand that when we become a part of the family of God, we are invited into a dynamic relationship with God in which through He wants to make us more into the person that He desires us to be. And here's the kicker. We do not do that in isolation from other people. We actually need one another to become who God wants us to be. And in that tone and in that understanding, even sometimes the conflict within churches can become pivotal, transformative opportunities to become more the people of God. And yet, a lack of a biblical understanding of love that makes it just about our feelings, when our feelings are hurt, we withdraw, or makes it just about me, seems to rid the church of the capacity to learn how to love as we have been loved. If the community of faith becomes the context within which we learn how to love as Jesus would have us love, we have to recognize that it is more than just about our feelings, and it is indiscriminate in who it advances us to love. We ought to love as God has loved us. But in addition to this, the church is not the end of God's love for us. In other words, we are not just called to love one another. Our love becomes not only an example, but the motivation to engage our world with the hope of Jesus Christ. For God so loved Skyview Church, it says in the NIV. For God so loved only Canada in the NRSV. For God so loved only this person or only that person. No, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, 
The church becomes an expression of the body of Christ when it learns to love in self-giving ways. We are invited to love as we have been loved and to love what God loves. And get this, God loves this world that he's created. And he has spared no expense given his very son so that this world might be saved. That this world might be saved from false notions of love, from conditional ways of understanding what it means to be loved, that this world would be saved from an individuality that takes precedent over the abuse of many, that this world would be saved from notions of love that has nothing to do with transformation and grace and mercy, that this world would be saved so that we would reflect, incarnate, become the very people of God in our communities, in our families, in our workplaces, and in our schools. Does anybody know the song by Foreigner? I want to know what love is. <laughs> Come on, John, do you know this song? You do not? Oh, you do. I knew between the two of you, Steph, you're the cooler. Uh, Foreign Lurie goes, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. You know, I have a sense that the world is searching for what true love is, and they don't know where to find it. And the Apostle Paul, to a church that is in conflict, living under Roman oppression and rule, is trying to help the church understand that, that their witness is tied into how they relate to one another. So get this. Quick history lesson. The church in Rome was not begun, was not started by Paul. We suspect that when those Jewish people gathered in Jerusalem in the early century, then the Holy Spirit fell upon them and empowered them to bear witness to all else, that those very same Jewish converts and followers of Jesus ended up in Rome and there in their synagogues and in their worship started to follow and proclaim Jesus. Rome in the early century attracted all sorts of diverse cultures from across the Mediterranean. So people flooded there. And what became a reality was a church that looked unlike it has ever looked before. A church comprising multi-ethnic people, Gentiles and Jews worshiping together. But as Rome goes, so goes the fate of the church. Claudius he decides as a Roman emperor to expel all Jews from the Roman city in the early century. And with that, he expels all Jewish Christians. For a number of years, there are no Jews allowed in the city of Rome. But when Claudius dies, Jews are allowed back into the city. When they come back into the city, they find that the church had continued to grow. The missionary activity of the Apostle Paul had spread, had influenced, and they had heard that God now welcomes Gentiles. And the Gentile church had become strong. And the Jewish Christians returning said, we once were in charge of all of this, now what? 
What do we do with you bunch of Gentiles who are worshiping in ways that we don't approve? What do we do with you Gentiles who need to become a little bit more Jewish before you become Christian? Now, it's not the only reason why the Apostle Paul writes to address a conflicted church, but the reason he also writes is to generate some funds for his missionary activity to Spain. But at the heart of the letter of Romans is this way in which Paul is trying to say that the way in which you live through even the tension within a community, the way in which you live through even the surrounding culture that might oppress you and that might even persecute you can reveal that you know God and that you know Know his love. Put it differently. Paul says this no matter the circumstances externally and internally, this Christ who was crucified, who died but was raised to life and ascended to heaven, is able to birth within you the very gift of God in adverse circumstances. You are still able to be who he wants you to be, even when the world's gone mad. Now, some Christians think that, or we may be tempted to think, let me include that, that, you know, we should live in a world in which the prevailing authority supports who we are. You know, Christian history would tell us right from the first century on that the church has had to learn how to be faithful amidst the culture that did not uphold its values. For several hundred years in the Western world, we have enjoyed the favor of a quote-unquote political system that upheld Christian values to some extent. But let's not forget this, that the church historically has remained committed to the ways of Jesus Christ in seasons where politics politics supported it and in seasons when it didn't, in seasons where it was persecuted and in seasons when it didn't. The contingency to faithfulness does not rest upon the prevailing culture, but on the one we worship as the risen Lord and Savior. And it is He that teaches us that the most defining characteristic that keeps a church on course, no matter what the waves that hit it, is the love that God has shown us and the love that we are called to live. Some people will say to me, Stu, hang on now. This is hard text. (laughs) To the question, you want to know what love is? I want you to show me, Paul says, this is what love looks like. Bless and do not curse even those who persecute you. Come on now. Really? (laughs) Bless and do not curse. In the early centuries, to, 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 to call a curse upon somebody would be to call upon the gods, whatever gods you had in your own understanding, and to ask those gods to bring calamity upon your enemies. <laughs> call down from the gods calamity upon your enemies. Paul says, instead of cursing, you, when you love as God has loved you through Jesus Christ, and when you learn to love in his ways within and through the community, You are not the kind of people that even desire hostility towards those who oppose you. Instead, not only does he discount not cursing, he says, I invite you to bless them, to pray God's goodness. This is the translation. To pray God's goodness upon even your enemies. What? 
you know what Jesus says in, in the Gospels, in both Matthew and in Luke, he makes this clear. He says, I know you, 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 you've heard some, some ideas about love before, but I say to you, pray for your enemies. I say to you, live in such a way that even your enemies will be surprised that you do not give them what they deserve, because this is the very heart of God for the world. Do you know what will change the world, what would end wars, what would end hostility, what would end conflict? It's not bigger armies and bigger tanks. It is costly compassion, like the compassion revealed through the Son of God who on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. If you want to know how hard Christian love is, it is not weak, but it is costly. It is worthy, willing to put itself in the place where it pays the price so that love wins. Who is there in our lives that we are called to bless and not curse? Jesus would say elsewhere, what good is it that you love those who love you? Even pagans do that, he says. What good is it that you, you only be gracious to those who are gracious to you? I say to you, love even those who oppose you. I want to suggest very quickly a couple of ways you can deal with that. If you have somebody or some people in your life that you are at odds with, Here's some things that have helped me over the years. The first thing that I need to do whenever I am challenged by a word like that that says my posture towards even those who oppose me ought to be one of grace is to remember when I stood in need of forgiveness. Remember the parable Jesus tells about the man who owes the king several lifetimes worth of money? And when he comes before the king, the king says, uh, that's it, you're done. And he says, I've got, I've got a family, please be gracious to me. And the king somehow forgives him. You remember that? An inordinate amount of money. He runs away, finds a guy on the street that owes him less than a month's wage, if I remember right. Puts his arms and around his necks and starts strangling him, demanding that he repay him, and then has him and his entire family thrown in prison. You know, there's many ways in which that scripture speaks truth, but one of the ways that it speaks truth is, is that forgetting the mercy we have received and acting without mercy is possible. But Christians who have come to understand that they are saved not because of their good works, not because of how well we keep the rules, not because we're in the right church or believe the right doctrine. Christians who believe they've been saved by grace, grace ought to be what first comes out of our life in relationship to those who need it. One of the key ways to begin is not to address the person, but to address our own need of such grace and forgiveness. You know, sometimes the Lord has to make it very practical for me and he has to remind me the moments in which I have stood before my wife requiring forgiveness. 
Whenever that attitude of pride bubbles up that says, I'm right, you're wrong. Now, sometimes, a few times, a couple of times, I'm right. But the capacity to enter in humbly in, in relationships which are hard and difficult and challenging is generated not out of our own strength and our power and our will, but out of our humility and honesty before God. We recognize that without His grace, we would not be. So, remember when we stood in need of forgiveness, remind ourselves of the grace that we have been given. Thank God for His grace that not only saves us, but changes us. And then I would suggest to you, pray that God would help you, would help me, because the ability to bless those who oppose us is not possible without the help of God. About three weeks ago, I, I have this in my notes, and I thought, man, I, I took it out of my notes, but I'm going to be candid with you. I've always been. About a few weeks ago, I got the information, uh, contact information for the gentleman who was responsible for a car accident that claimed the lives of both my parents and two of my younger siblings. For years, for years, I've wanted to reach out to this man. You're saying to me, Stu, what were you going to say? I have no idea. But you see, when my little brother was just young and he was hit by a car and the woman was more concerned about being late for work than the fact that she had just knocked down a little eight-year-old boy who held on for life, suffered brain damage, would go back to school a year later and would do fairly well given what he dealt was dealt with. But that little boy uh, taught me so much about grace and forgiveness because I remember when we were in the court where this woman was charged with the offense that both my little brother and my mom and dad extended to this woman such grace and mercy that over the years, grace and mercy has bothered me <laughs> to the point where I needed to reach out to him. I called when I got the number, and uh, there was no answer. I've called since then several times, but I, I'm now starting to recognize that perhaps he's not ready to speak to me. And yet, I don't say this so that you can look at me and go, oh, Stu, you're such a godly man. I'm not saying this to say, oh, I, I, you know, I have this ability. I, it's just that I, 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 saw, I saw in the church of my upbringing in the lives of my parents the desperate, determined, deep conviction 
that love moves us to places where others would say we don't have to go because we desire this one thing, that all men, that all women, that all of creation would experience the grace and mercy of God. Bless those who oppose you. Do not curse them. Pray that God would help us. And perhaps I would add this to my comments on this note. Ask that God would show us what it means to become a blessing to even difficult people. Such prayer would change us. Such prayer would change you and me. Very often in conflicting situations, we are not left without suffering ourselves. But more significantly, we become those who are in bondage. And I, I want to live free, don't you? <laughs> I want to live in such a way that I'm at peace with others, don't you? And I don't know who I'm speaking to tonight, or tonight, this morning, but I wonder if the Lord is inviting us to become a blessing to even those who oppose us. The second thing that comes from verse 15 is to share in the joys and sorrows of others. This is what it means to love, says the Apostle Paul. I want to read that text. Here's what he says. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, says this, and I want you to hear this very, very clearly, so, there, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Hear this. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. And what the apostle Paul is saying, he is saying that there is a sense in which to love means that we become intimately connected to others so much so that we know what season of life they are in. That we know whether it's a mournful season or a rejoicing one. You see, the, the call to love, according to the Apostle Paul, cannot happen from a distance, and if it happens in a Christian community and it happens in the people of God's lives, it is an honest love because it's a love that acknowledges that sometimes the sun shines, but sometimes it rains. You know, when you start to embrace, when I start to embrace the way of Jesus and the love of God, you know, the sorrows of others we share the joys of others we share. Now, I've got to say this, though. I've got to say that sometimes I think that Christians have forgotten how to be joyous. We have forgotten how to celebrate. We have got forgotten how to... to and here's the thing. When, when we share in life like this, I hope I can explain it, but when we share in life this intimately, when we share in both the joys and the sorrows, it moves us out of ourselves. You know, it's not no longer just about my joys and sorrows. It becomes about the joy and sorrows of others. There is something ruinous to this individuality that defines the church so strongly in the Western world that it's just about me and what I'm dealing with. But when we become the kind of people 
that love beyond ourselves, that mourns with those who need someone just to sit next to them and cry with them. You know, uh, what would happen when we are so known to each other that that level of relationship, that level of trust, that level of intimacy defines this community of faith. What would it look like when we know when our neighbors are mourning? What would it look like to show up at the party where we're rejoicing and celebrating? Someone, one of my staff said this, I don't remember which one. All of them have good ideas when we talk about the text. So I'm going to credit them all. I said, you know, Stu, sometimes we don't rejoice because we're jealous. We don't like sharing somebody else's joy. We just want our joy. And an individual Christian spirituality, it's all about me. But when we start to adopt this attitude that we're in this together, your pain I share, your sorrows I share, your joys I share, it makes a church more than just a gathering. It makes it a people of God belonging unto God who reveals to the world what it truly means to love. Therefore, in the life of the church, we have seasons of mourning and seasons of rejoicing. Our mourning does not lead us to despair, for the one whom we serve and worship on Sunday has overcome Satan's sin and death, and therefore we mourn authentically the loss and the suffering of others, but we do so as people who never, never, never lose hope that one day, he will restore and make all things new. <sighs> Can I keep going? To share in the sorrows and in the joys liberates us from a self-centeredness. It opens us to the gift of companionship, community. Listen, life is lonely enough. Life is lonely enough. I, I wonder if the Lord is inviting our church in this new season as we emerge from what has been one of the toughest seasons of life for many of us, whether there's an opportunity for us to grow closer as the church. To be liberated not only from self-centeredness and open to the gift of community. Listen, we can't know each and every one that is here. Even in this gathering, it's no way for everyone to know, except me. I know everyone. But I want to ask you some very pertinent questions. In this community, are there people who walk alongside you that they know what season of life you're in? Are there people you can confide in, people you trust, people who won't judge you because they know how deep mercy has transformed their own life, but people that will walk with you towards the hope and the liberation that comes through Jesus Christ? Are there people who walk alongside you that says sometimes it pours and it doesn't stop for a long time? Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes it's dry. Sometimes it feels like defeat 
is what is going to be the end of me. Sometimes it seems like there is no hope. But then comes that brother and sister in Christ. Yes, I'm using old language, but it's good language. That family of faith that steps alongside us and says, I've walked this road and he is faithful. I've been there. I've seen what you've seen and I know our God is good. I have been to the bottom of the well and there have found the grace and mercy of God. Where is the hope that we are seeing Seeking in this community. It comes from the family of God who has walked with Jesus through the sunshine and through the rain and have proven him to be faithful and true. And sometimes I just need a brother. I just need a sister to come alongside me and says it's going to be okay because we serve the same God. Come on, church family. Don't you want to be that kind of people to one another? Those kinds of people that says, listen, I'll walk with you through the rain and I'll bring an umbrella. And we will dance. And oh, will we dance when we celebrate. That's only point two. Verse 16, to live in harmony by keeping pride in check. That's what it means to love, to live in harmony. It has been said that there's no greater threat to unity than pride. Pride within the church in Rome was a reality that threatened its witness. The antidote to pride, and I'll be real quick with the last few points. The antidote to pride, antidote to pride Paul offers is to associate with the lowly, which has two potential meanings rendered from the original language. First, Paul could be saying this. We're not 100% sure. To associate with the lowly could mean to associate with people of lowly estate or people that are not in the upper class of society. I have a friend. I have a friend. (laughs) Not shocking to you, I have friends. Uh, She's uh, much older than me. She is my, uh, you know, prayer, prayer partner. She prays for me all the time. When we show up in social settings, when I was working at the church that she used to attend, it always caught my attention that in a room of many people, the ones she was always attracted to was the little children. And she would go down on her knees, <laughs> and she'll be having a comment. When my kids, they don't even remember this, she would be chatting with them, asking them how they're doing, what they like, being excited about what they were excited about. This beautiful saint of God, this woman, modeled for me what it means to love not to get somewhere or to get things from people, but to love people for who they are and to love those who have nothing to offer you in return. Now, I would argue that kids offer a lot in return. Kids bring me so much joy. (laughs) But there's a, a wonderful lesson in what Paul is saying is he's saying that some of you, um, you, 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 you want to get ahead. And so you are discriminating in your love. You, you're only associating with those who can get you somewhere. You're only, you're only concerned about what others may do for you. But I, I say to you, Love the lowly. 
Maybe I should flip that and say it this way. Maybe some of us feel like we are the lowly. It has not ceased to amaze me over the years. I've met very competent, successful people, people who have been successful at life, at business, at work, at careers. But that nagging emptiness is there that asks the question, am I worthy of someone's love, not just for what I do for them, but for who I am? To live in harmony requires that we keep attitudes in check that makes us feel that we are superior, that we only should associate with those who can help us. <laughs> uh, but second interpretation of this text is potentially that Paul is saying to associate with lowly tasks. Perhaps not just with lowly people, but to do things that others think are above them. I want to say this carefully, but the moment Stu can't pick up a broom, or we don't really have that surfaces, a vacuum, in this church is the moment you should invite him to leave. I hope I stay a long time. Now I've got to have a vacuum in my hand when you show up at the church. It is not that I want to be vacuuming all the time. I probably need to do what Paul says, is find my place in the body and lean into that. Give the best I can as a preacher and a teacher of the Word and as a shepherd. But perhaps there's someone here that just kind of has to find that place and recognize that even if it is, vacuuming the carpets, do it. <laughs> do it with joy. <laughs> do it with passion. Do it with commitment. Do it with the sense of pleasing God. Perhaps there's a sense in which even the lowly task is a way of keeping our attitudes in check. You see, if it doesn't start with a pastor, if a pastor's too good for the lowly, he is not following the ways of Jesus. No amens. And if we become a people who are willing to put on the apron and wash the feet, maybe this is the very thing that would ensure attitudes that leads to peace. I'm so sorry I'm taking so long. It's a lot of good things to say. Verse 17 through 19, don't retaliate. Think about the impact of your actions upon others. Oh, it's so easy to want to retaliate, isn't it? And someone hurts you, harms you. The Apostle Paul seems to say that when you do that, you're only thinking of yourself and retribution. You're not thinking about the fact that you're a part of something bigger than yourself and what you do reflects on others. He's also saying this, that how you react when you are hurt says more about who you are than you realize. And he's also saying this, that how you react when somebody offends, hurts, and does that which is wrong towards you can become a witness. A witness of who God is, a witness of what God can do to those who are watching. He says this, make every attempt to be at peace with others. 
I love that he's so honest, because sometimes peace is not something we can achieve on our own. Sometimes people are not ready for it. Sometimes circumstances does not lend to it. But he says, make every attempt. I want to ask you today, in your relationships with others, in your relationship in your home, in your relationship with your children, in relationship with colleagues, in relationship with people in the church, have you made an effort to live at peace? And then finally, and all God's people says, no, don't stop. That's kind of that nervous laughter. <laughs> uh, he says, practice compassion, even to your enemies. It has the power to transform what was meant for evil into something good. The story in First Kings the prophet Elisha commands the king of Israel to not kill his Syrian enemies that God had miraculously put into his hands. And Elisha, the prophet, says to the king, I want you to instead give them a banquet. <laughs> you know, when I was reading that, I was thinking to myself, the psalmist in Psalm 23 says, Thou prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I wonder. It's okay. Sometimes you can theologically wonder. I wonder if there's something profound about what the psalmist is alluding to that maybe has escaped us for a long time when we think that the only reason God is preparing a banquet for him is to keep him safe from his enemies. And yet, there seems to be a way in which Jesus um, desired to eat with just about anybody with the purpose of having them find the eternal bread of life. I just wonder that, uh, and this scripture is interesting, we can talk about burning coals, you know, there was this, this you know, they, they kind of suggest this, but nobody can say it's for sure, but if someone did something wrong, they'd make you walk with burning coals on your head. But it seems to be counterintuitive to the tone of the text to kind of think that what Paul is saying is that when you're kind to your enemies, you're bringing judgment upon them. It just doesn't seem likely. It is more probable that what Paul is saying is that this kind of love that blesses those that don't deserve to be blessed has the power to transform the minds of even the enemies and to make them aware of who God is. To the song, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Paul has shown us. Church of God, may we find strength, courage, honesty, and humility to love as we have been loved.